if we're going to do a proof, a technical proof, we want it to be a proof of value. We want to have determined and agreed upon with the customer what's the value that Sumo can add. And then our job as pre-sales is to go and show them that we're capable of achieving the goals that we promised. Welcome to Pre-Sales Hero by Vivid. I'm Perry Bronson, your host. Today, we'll be talking about the role of pre-sales when it comes to value selling. I'm here with Bob Burkhart, the VP of Global Systems Engineering at Sumo Logic. How are you doing today, Bob? Uh, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Wonderful. And remind me, where are you calling in from? I am in lovely Santa Clara, California. Oh, nice. I'm located in San Francisco, and uh, it's nice to have another Bay Area representative over here. I'd love to hear how you got into pre-sales. So if you don't mind sharing your what we call the hero origin story, that would be awesome. Sure. I, like probably a lot of folks, started out my career very technically. I was a computer science bachelor degree, and I was a programmer and a DBA at a very large winery, actually. And it just came time to make a move. I was there for about four years. So in early in my career, I was talking to lots of companies. And at the last hour, I got a call from the, the person that was running the customer support organization at Mercury Interactive in the Valley. And I, I think the first thing I told him was, no, I'm not interested. And he said, well, why don't you at least hear me out? So 24 hours later, I was coming home from an interview there. And and 24 hours after that, I accepted a job. And so I went to my first software vendor, Mercury Interactive. I spent about a year in the customer support organization. But over the course of that year, I found myself attaching to every marketing campaign I could. I was going to the trade shows. I was helping to develop content. And it just became very natural and kind of put myself on the radar, I guess. Then that guy that hired me went to another very, very small company and he brought me over. And that's when I took my first pre-sales job at a company. I was like employee 17, I think. And that's where it kicked off. So I jumped in with both feet at a very, very small company back in the early or the late 1990s. Wow. That must have been pretty amazing to be the 17th hire. And I'm presuming the only pre-sales person for quite some time. <laughs> Everybody did. Everybody wore lots of hats, you know, which is fun at the smaller companies. You get to touch on um, lots of marketing, lots of sales development. Um, certainly, we're trying to develop that pre-sales kind of function, which bled into post-sales and into implementations and everything else. Right. Give you that full end-to-end -end perspective. And I also love the the wine DBA piece. That's great. I feel like most of the people I interview have something creative in their background. And so that's really cool. I'm a big fan of wine. Another good reason to live in the Bay Area. Right. So you've, <laughs> you've come a long way since then, of course. And I'm curious to hear what experiences have you had working at quite the array of different companies, so different sizes, and also working in different markets. And so I'm curious how that background has shaped your approach to pre-sales leadership? I think a couple of things, certainly the fact that you know, now I'm lucky enough to be managing a global team. So working at both large and small teams gives me the dynamic that happens in both ways. Our APAC team and our EMEA team here at Sumo, they operate very independently. And it, I think my experience helps me understand their mentality. It helps me understand their challenges, helps me give them the independence that makes them more dynamic and successful. But at the same time, having been at much larger organizations where we dealt with a lot of complexity and very broad product, product portfolios helps me understand, okay, there's a, there's a role I play in providing kind of a central service to the team. 
one of the big things I think my job is, is to remove barriers from them being successful and going out and selling software. So that allows me to sit being in California. I'm at headquarters. I can coordinate with all the peer organizations and help them get the tools they need, get the education they need, get the enablement and the, everything they need to do their jobs well. So I think those those things have really come together from all those different experiences is knowing that everybody has a different role and teams operate differently. Absolutely. And has that looked really different between, I know you've worked at HP in the past, you've worked at really early startups. How does that change different sized companies like that? I think you hit on one of the big things, which is that the smaller companies, there's something about sales engineers by our nature. We were very connected to a lot of the different aspects because we're both technical and business oriented. So we can see things really well across all the organizations. We can understand the engineers' challenges. We can understand the marketers' challenges. We certainly know what the salespeople's challenges are. Um, so at the smaller companies, that shifting of lots of different hats is very natural, I think. And it's actually enjoyable. It's something that sees like a lot. At the bigger companies, HP is the perfect example. The portfolio is so broad. We switched every, I mean, it it felt like it was uh, on the calendar every year we would switch the model from generalist to specialist. And it was that train was hard to get off of. I I don't look back on it fondly because it would be better if we could just commit to something and get the momentum, which is something I'm focused on now. Like, how can we build a model that really supports either thing, you know, whether we're generalists or specialists? And we're trying to build that out here at Sumo now by letting people be both responsible for the whole portfolio, which is much smaller than HP, to be fair, but deep enough in each area that they can go and you know where they're where they're super comfortable they can really be an SME and an expert and really shine um, in the areas that they're specialized yeah it sounds like you're in a cool cool place where you can balance that breadth and depth and not have to change the structure of the team and the expectations on a constant level which is really cool you spent some time in Europe uh, in one of your companies is that right that's right yes and it was actually that very small company that I that first time I took a pre-sales job and we were just launching our business in Europe. And I, I threw my hat in the ring to be the American that flew over and helped operate that business. So um, it was myself and a general manager, and we hired everybody around us. I was responsible for pre-sales, post-sales, and the professional services team. And yes, I mean, I learned a tremendous amount about the dynamics of being so far away from headquarters and the mothership, but also trying to deal with all the different cultures and natures. It's very different. It's not here in North America. Obviously, we have 50 states, but they're not that different from each other in a lot of ways. It's so much different abroad. They hold on to their culture so tightly that you really need to adjust depending on where you're selling a lot. So once you can hire people in the regions, um, you can adjust to that more easily. But if you're sort of the only person and you're operating, we were operating out of London, you're flying across the Mediterranean or you're going up to Scandinavia and you're dealing with different cultures, you really need to slow down and think about what is the way they like to operate? How do they like to buy software? How do they like to work with their partners and vendors? So I think the most important thing isn't the details that I learned, it's the appreciation for that. Yeah, the adaptability, it sounds like. I too have worked in Europe, which was really interesting. I wasn't in pre-sales at that time or marketing. I was a technical project manager living in Poland. And it's funny, I I would actually come in on certain projects as sort of the neutral party because there's still weird tension between Poland and Germany. So it was a really (laughs) interesting experience. 
And back to the value selling and the sort of outcome-driven positioning of, of the technology, how was that in Europe? Was that, some, was that even on the radar back then? Generally speaking, is that how people buy software in that region from your experience? Well, in my experience, I would have to say yes, but it, it was very particular because we were really, um, we were at the very, very leading edge of the online advertising curve. It was a, it was software for automating online advertising and we were evangelizing. We were going to very traditional companies and trying to convince them that online advertising was going to be a big part of their market motions. So it was a lot of evangelizing, but our selling model was that, look, show them the cost-benefit analysis of choosing to do it or not do it, do it or automating it or not automating it, working with you know one of the big houses like DoubleClick that was trying to centralize that function versus taking it in-house and doing it themselves. So we actually helped a lot of companies get up off the ground and develop centralized advertising services. Uh, and we were building out their business plans with them. We helped them talk, we helped them figure out how do they actually monetize the network of sites they already had through online advertising. And it was all value selling at the end of the day. I don't think we called it that then. I think we just said, we're building business plans and we're going to help you do that. But we were digging in deep and helping them understand how much it would help them to partner with us versus trying to go it on their own, which at the end of the day, I think that's what we do when we do value selling all the time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I can relate a lot to the education as well. I think at every company I've worked that had a presence in Europe, it felt like we were always doing a lot of education and the business case was really important. And they, they did sometimes look differently, actually, at Optimizely. That's where we had our uh, sort of head of value engineering, great guy who's now their chief of staff. So he's done very well for himself. His uh, services were always very sought over here in the U.S., but I know uh, it took him very far in, in Europe. And to your point about it sort of depends on what you're selling. What about the different business models where, where you've worked in pre-sales? How has that influenced your, your approach, your style? And, and also, does value selling look different? Yeah. So I've, I've been doing this a long time. So um, kind of cut my teeth in the on-prem perpetual license world. And now I'm fully into the cloud natives. Sumo is 100% born in the cloud. We like to say we don't even own a server and we're a SaaS offering. So that migration, I, it kind of feels organic to me now, but I think about some of the companies, some of the customers we're selling to, it's not second nature to them. And you have to work with them um, on what the advantages of that are, the subscription model and the consumption models. One of the, one of the things that happened uh, when we developed this SaaS model is we made it really, really easy for customers to switch for, to us. That was what we were trying to do in the early days back at Mercury. When we first started building a SaaS model, we were going to the legacy, the customers of the legacy vendors and convincing them that, hey, all this work you're doing to maintain all these things, give that to us. We'll take care of all that for you. And you can focus on just getting the value out of the software. But that propagated and now everybody's doing that. And so what started out as being, it's really easy to enter SaaS it's also really easy to exit SaaS and go to a different SaaS provider. So that whole value argument becomes even more important. And we, we focus very much on how do we determine the value that we offer the customers early in, in the pre-sale stages, but that we make certain that we carry that forward through the customer relationship, that we focus on those things six months, 12 months, 18 months down the road, and that we're continuing to make the same arguments 
or, or prove out the same value judgments for the customers, because that's what really gets us adoption and gets us traction and um, really hooks us with the customer. Really important with SaaS because it's so easy to switch. Right. It makes it easy to to move on. I wonder with usage, I know that's like the hot thing these days is the usage-based models. I think probably the same, if not even more exaggerated there, the importance of the adoption, of course. So I know that at Sumo Logic, you have a big value selling initiative, and I'm curious to talk a bit more about specifically what is pre-sales role in this methodology and what was your role really in kind of building out the methodology? So I've been at Sumo about two years, and the real kind of decision to adopt value selling preceded me. So there, there was there was a lot of motion here um, before I arrived. I think my influence has been more just in how pre-sales interacts with that. I, I'm not trying to take credit for it. It was it was <laughs> the direction we were headed, and all of my leaders have been here for years. So I, I think I just came in with maybe a fresh set of eyes and helped say the areas that we can help out a lot. The the biggest change was. I've always been heavily focused on protecting my SEs and their time and where we spend their resources. And I've always told salespeople that, look, it's the most important resource you have to spend in your sales endeavors. Make sure you spend it wisely. And that's even more true now than ever because we're, we're moving so fast and we're trying to shrink down the timeframes we work on opportunities. So you don't want to get engaged in something that doesn't have a chance to win. That's why value selling works so well is we identify early what it's going to take to convince a customer. And then we just go convince them that we're the vendor that can do that. Our role in that is in proof of value. So we, we, we've, definitely made that transition. We always want to engage. If we're going to do a proof, a technical proof, we want to be a proof of value. We want to have determined and agreed upon with the customer, what's the value that Sumo can add? And then our job as pre-sales is to go and show them that we're capable of achieving the goals that we promised. We're getting away from features and functions and proving out that one thing works and um, that we're better at a bit and a bite than a competitor. And just saying, look, we told you that we could provide these things to you. We could deliver this value. Let me prove that to you through our proof. And then the customer can, can move forward with a financially sound argument for going out and getting the budget to do it. So it's a big shift. It's a shift away from thinking of features and functions and test cases and very technical jargon and working at a slightly higher level to help the business decision be based soundly on financials. That's really interesting, especially how you mentioned that taking this value approach is sounds like you're saying it's helped you actually reduce cost of sale and qualify out deals that could be easier to fall into a long demo phase or a long POC phase if it's not centered around value. Is, is that more or less what I'm hearing? Yeah, I think so. I, I was just talking about this with someone earlier today. If you go back my time at Mercury, one of our big selling points was we were a software quality shop. And one of our big selling points was if you're trying to deliver high quality software, where you find a bug is really, really important to the cost of delivering something. If you find a bug in production, that's the worst possible scenario. You have to take, take things offline. You have to take it back to development. You have to come up with a new solution. It takes a ton of time to do that. Whereas if you are smart about it and you do it in the early phases and you find the bug in development, there's very little cost. You're already in the process of building that product. You fix the bug and then it goes with quality into production. It's kind of the same thing. If you don't spend the time up front to do good qualification and discovery and really understand what's going to be important to the customer, you're going to have to do that much later in the cycle. And by then, it's much harder to do because you've, you've already kind of committed 
to use a poker term, you're kind of at that table stakes position. I've got a lot of chips on the table. I'm afraid to walk away. It's a fallacy, by the way. Those aren't your chips anymore. And definitely the investment early will reap benefits later. And we talk about qualification all the time. It's the, the flip side of that coin is disqualification. It's really important to know how to say no in a sales opportunity. You need to be able to identify that there really isn't an opportunity here and I should move on to another one where we have a much better chance of winning. I love that. And why I think it was sort of stood out to me and I find it really interesting is when I hear POV proof of value, I think of a much more arduous lift to get to that sort of end goal. But if if it is higher stakes to get into a POV and maybe you're just working fewer, better deals, I can totally see how that's going to lift up your the effectiveness of your team. That makes a lot of sense. Hey, the other component of that is that selling this way, value selling, it gives you a, such a better stance in the last stages of the opportunity where you're actually down to negotiating and um, trying to position, you know, what is the, the relationship going to be with the customer? Because if you find that you're discounting, and, and I'm not saying we don't discount everybody, you know, it's just part of the nature of the business. But if you find that you're discounting as a tactic to close a deal, that really means you haven't defined the value. And that's the important thing. So doing really good value selling allows you to have a much better argument for why the customer should be spending with you or, or developing a bigger relationship with you or taking a bigger bite of the apple at any given time, because you've proven to them that that bigger bite will have a bigger reward. Discount is a very powerful word. When I hear that word mentioned, it makes me think, okay, we need to take a step back and realize, have we actually done a good enough job selling the value of what we're bringing to the equation? Because if we're discounting, we probably haven't. Right. And it's interesting for pre-sales to be getting in those conversations. I know from my own time working in pre-sales, I mean, the the pricing, the proposal, and it was one thing I didn't have to worry about. I, I did a lot of kind of value assessing and, and helped fill out ROI calculators and position the return on investment, that kind of thing. Now, has this shift from POC to POV, does it mean that pre-sales is taking on more a responsibility in the business conversations? Is that what I'm hearing? Um, I think so. I, I don't think it's a, I think you're right. I think your assessment is right. We're, we're still, we're influencers on that process. I, I think that we both want and need our sales counterparts to drive that part of it, but we're, we're huge influencers on it. And you know, some of the things that in this SaaS world, the, the consumption world that you mentioned, a lot of those things aren't, it's not a simple little spreadsheet where you can plug a few things in and come up with a number. It's very nuanced. Like we have to work with our customers in pretty great depth to understand what their real needs are and build out a mutual plan that helps them get what they need, maximizes their investment. And uh, we are heavily involved in that. It, um, it takes time, it's very consultative. Our biggest customers, they have just massive data sets and they struggle to know how to get insights out of them. That's why Sumo exists. And in an ideal world, everything's free and they can just put everything in, right? They can have a giant data lake and massive AI on top of it that tells them everything that they need to know. But those things cost money. The compute costs money, the storage costs money, the, the transport costs money. And so the, the process of figuring out what's the right mix, what are the right sources to use, how, where's, what's the right place to put that information, mm-hmm. it's not simple. And we play a big role in that. And that's really a, that's a financial exercise. We're trying to help them maximize what they can get. 
Right. That makes sense. But you need that technical know-how and how the product works and how to stretch it to maybe in some ways. That's that's really cool. I believe from our previous conversation, you said that you do still do POCs. When is the right time to do a POC versus a POV? Uh, well, certainly you read your customer and you understand what they want. Um, you're not going to force a proof of value on a customer that really is more f- technically and functionally focused. If they just want to see how things work and make an assessment on their own, lots of customers just say, let me get my hands on it and, and I'll figure it out for myself. And if they really mean that you don't want to try and distract them from that. That's their operating model. So that's one thing. I would also say that the, the Sumo platform is very, very sound. It works extremely well. And if there's a trust factor with the customer or the prospect that they already believe we can deliver the value, they just need to see that the software can do what it's supposed to do, it's probably a little easier. Like why go, why not just take that shorter route? If that's what they want, take the shorter route. And that certainly comes into play when it's you know cross-sell, upsell versus new logo. So if you already have an existing customer and they're already, you know, fans of, of the company, of Sumo in our case, then we don't necessarily have to go through a big value proposition to introduce something new to them or just to increase the adoption levels, right? We can just, hey, there's new features, new functions, new areas. Why don't you try them out? And they're more willing to do that. You can just prove that or show them or help them get introduced to it. You don't have to go that route. So I think there's a couple of reasons. One is what's their nature? What, how do they want to operate? But also what's the trust factor between the two companies? Because if you have high trust, then you can probably work on just more of a, let's just talk about the technical needs. That makes sense. So basically new logos, new business, oftentimes it's going to make sense to do a POV versus it's an upsell, it's a cross-sell. Or I would suppose also if it's more of a kind of commercial deal where it's a smaller company, maybe there's not a lot of legroom for expansion. Maybe in those cases, the POC makes more sense too. Sure. I would say that that's another great example. So we, you know, our, our business, like many, is broken up into mid-market and enterprise. And in the mid-market, you'll often find that the, the economic buyer is quite often one of the users as well. They're, they're more technical. The decisions are made a little bit lower in the organization. And so they're, they're more amenable to, hey, just show me how to do it. I, I'm proud of my technical capabilities. So let, let me get in and do it. Um, so in the mid-market, proof of concept might be a better label often. Although we do make sure to, to always cover off on those value assessments where we can because we want to help them make the decision. You know, they, there's there's always going to be a, a budgeting decision somewhere along the line. And if we can give them some ammo to make that easier for the finance group or the, the, the folks holding the purse strings, then that's a good thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And at Sumo Logic, my understanding is you also have a, a product-led growth strategy that you're balancing with the enterprise motion. Curious if you can expand a little bit about how does pre-sales work on both sides? I think I understand the enterprise piece um, but certainly curious to hear about where do you come in with the product-led growth? So I have a qualifying question for you. When you say product-led growth, you mean more of our organic come in, try freestyle. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Do you have a free tier as well? Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're, we're talking about. The same thing. One of the beauties of being a SaaS platform is that, again, the startup time is minimal. We have, it's called Sumo Logic Free. We internally call it SLF and customers can sign up for a full functioning um account anytime they want. And it's, you know, one of the, the things we're very proud of is how easy it is to get going. Um, some of the the introductory wizards and so forth and be ingesting data in an hour and pulling insights from it, depending on uh, what you've gone after, what kind of data sources you're pulling in. Our app catalog, 
It's got hundreds of different data sources and application layers sitting on top of it. So if you were to pull in, you know, CloudTrail from AWS and O365 data from Office, and then maybe a bunch of networking gear from Cisco sending log information in and metrics from your web tier, we have apps that sit on top of all of those. So you can get that data ingested in a number of hours, turn on the apps, have dashboards built for you. They're automatically built based on those data sources, and you're already seeing information in a matter of hours. So that's that's how we draw people in. Thousands of free accounts set up every quarter. And it's just a really fantastic way for us to get introduced to customers. We've actually really invested in that a lot in the past year or two. It used to be that those became leads that went into our normal sales engine. We've actually built a sales engine on top of just that now. We have a team of people that it's their job to nurture those people that come in because you know a lot of people will come in, they'll try it, they'll fuss around for a little bit and then something catches their attention, they forget about it. So now we follow up. We don't we're, we're not naggy. We don't we don't chase them, but we make sure that hey, we saw you were in, we saw that you did a few things. Is there anything I can help with? We're we're investing more and more of that all the time. The fact that people anyone who wants to get their hands on the product to a certain degree really can do you think that has helped reduce the amount of time pre-sales has to spend in the POC since a lot of your buyers are coming to you fairly informed about a lot of how the product works, maybe not all? Sure, because a lot of the setup is done. The vast majority of our POVs are already live trials. Customers have come in and, and part early in the sales cycle, if they haven't signed up, we get them to sign up just so we can start giving them introductions, right? We're, we're very proud of the platform. We don't have any fears of them getting in and playing around. So why wouldn't we do that? So we always do that. It helps accelerate the kickoff of the POV. They may already have some of their most important data sources lined up and one less thing for us to do. I'd say that actually the really interesting part is at the other end of the POV, if you go through this process with us when we're done, it may be that we're going to scale it out. You're live. That's a production environment and you can start using it right away. There's no sort of, okay, we're going to turn the POV off and then we'll get PS involved and they'll turn you back on. It's just a nice flowing relationship. So it sounds like a lot of your buyers are coming in kind of at the 200 level or above, if we can reflect back to our, our courses studies in the past. So they're not coming in, not knowing anything about how it works. They're coming in pretty educated. And so that seems to unlock more of an opportunity for you to talk about more complex use cases for your product, more ways to unlock value, and then also to map it to the financial advantages. Do you think you could do that if you didn't yeah. have a free version? Well, sure. I think one of the things about our POVs is, is where we really shine. And it, it's really important to our customers that we can show off what we're capable of very quickly. Time to value is one of the most important things to them. So mm-hmm. even if they haven't started a free trial, yeah, that's just a bit of an accelerant for us. But if they haven't, then it's easy enough for us to just jump in. We can, we'll have that kickoff call involve the very first setup of their trial. We'll do it live on the call. And in some ways, it plays to our strengths because we'll do it within an hour call, right? It's not like this takes days and lots of whiteboarding and everything else. We can actually get a lot accomplished that fast. So um, I think the trial helps us get them acclimated to using it. That's awesome. In terms of outcomes, I believe I heard you say earlier that it's just really seamless. So whether they're coming from being a free user into 
this sort of paid life cycle, or you're transitioning from a buyer into a customer, that pre to post sales handoff, how, how is that impacted by this different way of selling, by this very value-focused way of, of closing the deal? It kind of goes back to that conversation in the SaaS world. It's so important to establish value early and then keep reinforcing it. The, the relationship between pre-sales and post-sales is more important than ever. And I think in the, in the cloud native world, it's becoming more and more important all the time. In my history, customer success wasn't a thing. And then many years later, I was running customer success in some of my past lives. And it's such a critical thing now. It's a real community. It's unlike any other community I've ever been part of in a way because competitors would collaborate on customer success topics. I mean, the, if you go to a customer success event somewhere, you're going to work with your competitors on those best practices. I've never seen anything like it. I would never, I wouldn't do that with my competitive counterparts in pre-sales, but it certainly operated that way. So that, that relationship between pre-sales and post-sales is it is one of the most important things that we do. And my counterpart on the customer success side, I've known her since back in the Mercury Interactive days to tell the story. She's been doing this forever. She kind of cut her teeth as we developed SaaS for the very first time back in the early 2000s. Like she's an absolute veteran of this. And so it's really nice that she and I agree so much on how that interaction should happen. I've always described it as a spectrum. You'll hear a lot of people talk about the handoff from pre-sales to post-sales. I fundamentally don't believe in that. I don't like when people use that word. It needs to be a continuum. The customer should never feel like there's a gyration going through that transition. As you leave a POV, we're going to leave that work complete and done. And it is the customer's environment. And then the customer success team is going to pick that up and probably scale it out and drive adoption and, and do more with it. But the customer never feels a gyration. It's really, really key to us helping them feel like we know what we're doing. We, we have their best interests in mind that we weren't just trying to sell them when we drove all those value conversations. We firmly believe in them. And, you know, every time we interact with them, we're going to keep reinforcing that our customer success counterparts, that's their job. Their job is to constantly be making sure that Sumo is delivering on our promises. And that's how you drive satisfaction and how you drive real customer adoption and loyalty. I love the the commitment and the accountability. And it really closes the circle because when you have started the relationship with the buyer, built around value from day one, and you've actually delivered that value, that's when you know, product marketing like myself gets to come in and, and actually tell those stories to the world and, and help bring in more people that are interested in yeah. realizing that value. It's, it's really great. Well, as a final thought, I'd love to hear from your perspective, what is the next big thing impacting the field of pre-sales? What's on the horizon? It's it's a double-edged sword, but one of the things that I see is our roles increasing all the time. And I certainly feel that the role of pre-sales is getting elevated all the time. It's far different from now than it was from decades ago and, and even just a few years ago. We're so strategic to these deals and I want to be very careful that we stay in our lane, basically. You know, we have a role that we play. It has expanded. We're more involved in this value selling and everything else. But the most important thing to me is that as we do all those things, 
the customer looks at their SE as the trusted advisor. It's a really important dynamic uh, between the salesperson and the SE, and they know it. They're really good SEs and really good salespeople. They know how to work that dynamic. It's equivalent to the good cop, bad cop thing. The sales guy will be the tough, trying to put the hammer down and get things done, and the SE will come in and be the expert and help the be delivering for that customer. That is going to continue. I think the, the pre-sales team is going to get pulled more and more and more into that, doing more on the business side. And that's great. I don't mind that at all. I just want to make sure that we're very careful about staying in our lane and keeping that trusted advisor status. And if, the, if that starts to break down and it starts to be that we need a different thing, I think it's probably a different role. And I've seen that at places like HP, we actually built a layer in between where it was a little bit more selling, a lot less technical, and it bridged the gap mm -hmm. between the two. It was a smart choice. It was a really smart choice. So I love that we're getting more and more attention that were becoming more and more important. I know for a fact that at the companies I've been at, especially this one, Sumo, our CEO, our CTO, when they want a real opinion on what customers want, they're calling their, the SEs, they're calling the SE leaders. Because we, like, again, go back to what I said before, they see the spectrum. They, they know all the different orgs at Sumo. They talk to hundreds of customers. It's just got a really good perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that in-betweener role, which I like that it rolls up to pre-sales, but I've heard it named solutions consultant, that kind of thing. Yeah. I think it's an important one too. And they don't have the same skills as your traditional sales engineer, but they do work very closely together. And it's like two sides of the same coin, pretty much. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, great, great words of advice and Great vision for the future. I think, you know, to sum it up with great power comes great responsibility and really uh, excited about the role of pre-sales to continue elevating. And yeah, it's a very exciting time. We have an associate SE program here at Sumo. And I was talking to one of the young gentlemen who we brought into the program. We bring people in from all sorts of backgrounds. And I was telling him today that, you know, he's really lucky to be where he is. I'm, I'm super happy that we have the program and that he's in it. He's, he's doing really well. I said, if he ever starts to wonder uh, if pre-sales is the right home for him, because he doesn't have that much experience yet, he hasn't seen a lot of different things, just give me a call because I'll convince him of why this is the best job to have. Um, and that's true for anybody that's listening. If, you know, if you want to give me a call and talk about why this is the best job, I can talk for a long time about that. Well, it's been really wonderful talking with you today, Bob. Thanks so much for stopping by and looking forward to staying in touch. Great. Thanks a lot.